the public have this, maybe this idea that it's completely faceless from the criminal group and it's victimless as well. Because, you know, we hear about it targeting a company, but of course it's not because the company owns customer data, but people still don't care about privacy, which is so heavily linked with security. Listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Jake Moore, Global Cybersecurity Advisor for ESET. Today, we'll be discussing what happens when a cybersecurity criminal gets caught. Jake, thanks for joining. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for having me today. I'm super excited to get into this topic because when you and I spoke originally, we were talking about what angle we wanted to cover. And so you sort of talked about your background, which we'll get into. And then you sort of said, like, what happens after a cybersecurity criminal gets caught? And no one actually really knows that answer. So I'm really keen with your background, your experience to dive on into this. So maybe let's start with you know, you've, you've got that interesting background. You've got 14 years in the police force plus an extra four that you've got at ESET, um, which is probably why you're as curious as much as I am about what happens to a cybersecurity once they get caught. So I'm just curious to start, what is the deal? What, what happens? Right. Well, the first thing you've got to mention is if they get caught. This is hard. This is one of the toughest of offences for the police. It's about forensics after the crime has happened, but also you've got to try and find where the person is before you even get into the digital forensics. You've got to go through cyber forensics, which is online. There's so much to go through. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack, but someone once once said to me, was well, actually like looking for a needle in a haystack, not even knowing there is a needle to find. And I thought, wow, it really is like that. It's so, so difficult. It's a long old process. and the money just simply isn't there, if I'm honest, especially with the police in the UK. We haven't got the people, the training, the money behind it that it that it actually warrants. You're looking at around 50% of crime, particularly in the UK, where that it's related to cyber and fraud offences. But it just doesn't get the same amount that you would expect. I mean, if you compare it to, say, a murder, of course, we're going to throw all of our resources at a murder. But cybercrime seems to just be forgotten about. But if we can delve into those forensics, those breadcrumbs of, of little pieces of evidence, then yes, it can be done, but it's so, so difficult. I mean, first of all, once you've chosen uh, your suspect, you've then got to look at what drives you've got to go through. And this is, again, a long process. You've got uh, policies and processes to go through. You can't cut corners. In the old days, we did, by the way. We really did just pick out uh, a drive that we were pretty sure it was. And we'd go, right, let's play with this before doing things like making an image of it. I mean, it, it was crazy times, but now those processes have come in correctly. It takes even longer. But we hear about lots of big stings and arrests. Uh, I think the PR teams of the police force love to talk about those arrests, but we rarely hear about the outcome. And that's because some don't go to trial because I talk about the evidence. Well, if the evidence isn't there thereafter, then it won't even make it to trial. We actually end up giving those computers and other devices back, which is frustrating. And they might be on bail for two years. And by then, the press just has, has forgotten about it. And they 
get back on their merry way. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot of things going on there. So first and foremost, when you said, is there a needle to find? Great point. Do you think that that's how people would view cyber criminals? Like, is there that needle? Are we still at that stage? (laughs) Yes and no. So I think we're still catching the low hanging fruit. And when I mentioned that, I'm talking the people that make mistakes. And there will be people that make mistakes. Maybe we're after a criminal and he forgets to turn on his VPN that day, or he's just so happened to use an old email address. I've seen lots of Netflix shows, I'm sure listeners have as well, where, where someone's made a simple mistake because they've just used an old email address that happens to be connected to an IP address, which is their home or their work address. And that's the thing that will link that back to a suspect. And then you can go on and carry on with your, say, what I'd go is a normal police investigation. But yeah, looking for that needle, which might not even exist, it's difficult. The the internet offers the availability to criminals to completely hide, hide in digital shadows, um, not leave any breadcrumbs at all in their wake, or point the police on a red herring uh, on a wild goose chase somewhere else completely. I mean, it's impressive what they can do. And this actually upsets the public. They go, no, that shouldn't be the way for the police. There should be a backdoor. I mean, looking into backdoor entries to break encryption, that's for another podcast altogether. But it's like the public want to to find a way of catching these these bad guys. Of course, it sounds good, but it's not the same as a physical crime, a burglary, robbery, or a murder, for example. There's going to be other forensics involved. This is cyber and digital forensics. Very difficult. And with the way that the internet's working with forums and other places where you can learn so quickly, it's kind of offering the upper hand to criminals. This is where it gets really interesting. So, okay, with your background, just say I'm in Australia. I commit a crime in the UK, but I go, all right, see you guys. I'm going back to Australia. And you somehow you figured out it's Chris of Reen, she's dodgy. What happens then? Now, I'm aware that there are obviously there's treaties, especially UK and Australia, there probably is. I would get extradited back to the UK. I'll probably get prosecuted or go to prison. But what happens if I flee to like a random country and then you can't really get me back? Is that often what happens? And then it just falls on deaf ears and then by that stage is a murder that happens or something else goes on and everyone forgets about it. So working in my small force in Dorset on the South Coast, we didn't have many people that were particularly, say, that clever that might look for loopholes in the law. But from colleagues from other forces like the Met, for example, in London, yes, that would happen and it would be very difficult. It just lengthens the process. None of these things get forgotten about. There's no simple way of of knowing uh, the tricks of the police where, oh, if you do X or Y, and if you go to a particular country, they'll forget about it. No, they don't want to be doing that. But they will just take longer to come down on those people. And it is difficult. I mean, I think the way that, that, that laws have been created in countries over years and years and years, particularly in the UK, they just haven't caught up with modern times. We're talking about offences that are now on the internet, online, which was nothing inconceivable back when they started writing laws of different lands. They never thought that there would be people doing an offence in another country. Um, and then which law does it come under? I mean, we're still going with where the offence takes place, but if it's actually only online, it's very difficult. This is a big grey area, and it, it's really complicated for the justice system to really understand. And, and we've still got police officers that don't really get it. 
because they've got to learn so much. I mean, I think it, training is 26 weeks. Well, 26 weeks, I'd say, is just on learning about cyber offences, let alone the whole rest of policing. So we've got a really difficult way of of balancing all of this. And that's why I think the police choose the, the easier offences. I mean, if you go and report a cyber offence, there's a good chance it won't get looked into. But if there is something that says, I know exactly who did it, um, I've definitely got the evidence, you might just catch the eye of the sergeant in the cybercrime team or the digital forensics team and say, you know what, we do have to get these figures in. We need to get some arrests. Let's go for the the best ones. And like I say, the low-hanging fruit, the ones that leave the evidence behind. So you think it's best that people should become their own sort of uh, detectives in these cases? That's why they're like, oh, well, low-hanging fruit, we're more inclined to catch this person. That is a great point. And people do. Um, we still, unfortunately, hear of stories where they go to the police with the evidence, all packaged up with a nice bow on top and say, right, here you go. I've even got some CCTV if you want some physical evidence as well. And the police force go, you know what, well, we're a bit busy today or we'll have someone look at that in a few weeks or months. And I know detectives that have got 30 jobs on at once that they're looking into and they'll be really serious offences as well. You know, it's so damaging for the public when they start to realise this. And I don't think we can blame the police as much. This is a government thing. You know, the government need to put more money into it. But, but yeah, you, you can definitely find as much evidence as possible. And that will hopefully catch the eye of the person at the top of the unit, so the sergeant, that will say, this is the one we go for. But so often um, nothing happens because it goes into the too difficult tray. I'm curious to know, how difficult is it, though, to catch a criminal? So you, you have touched on a little bit, but is it like, okay, when you're dealing with a physical murder or something, it's probably slightly easier because there's that human being that you can see. When it comes to cyber, you can't really see it as much, so it becomes inherently harder. So I'm curious to know, how difficult is difficult here? Yeah, so... Not every police force in the UK has its own dedicated uh, cybercrime team that is looking particularly at offences that are occurring. They're, they're quite reactive rather than proactive. But if they are able to, to know exactly where to look, to know what might be happening, maybe they've got some, uh, some really good intelligence, which is, you know, we are an intelligence-led country in our policing. If that is the case, then there may well be something that lies within the offence online. We're looking for mistakes, though. Like I say, someone using an old email address or someone that's just forgotten to to use the dark web um, and their ISP has uh, flagged something. Um, And these are the kind of, of tricks that we might be looking at. But of course, we know that criminals are so good at uh, not making those mistakes that they are they're very clever at not leaving any evidence behind. So how difficult is it? Extremely difficult. And this is why I think the figures are something like 1% of cyber criminals actually do any jail time. But, if, but like I say, if you even find who has done it, that that's actually when the job really starts. And I remember I used to work on cases in the digital forensics unit for over a year because that's how long some of these things would take. It might actually not land on on the investigator's desk for a while, because of course you've got other more um, emergency um, jobs to look at. And of course, risk to life jobs will 
or get a higher priority. Um, but if it's a simple fraud case, then it would be less priority. So it might take months before it lands on the desk. And then once they're then in that job, it can be extremely difficult to go and find anything that might be encrypted. You might have to then brute force through a password. But we all know a brute forced password of, say, over six characters long is going to take an infinite amount of time. We used to use um, GCHQ to help us with breaking through encryption. They'd have some enormous computers that could brute force, I think, up to 10 characters, uh, maybe even a few more within a week. And they would really hammer it for us. Within a week, they'd say, yes, but they, they wouldn't ever stop. They would then keep those images of hard drives. If it takes longer than a week, give us a call and say, look, it's going to take a lot longer, but we're never going to stop. And I, I like that. And I think criminals need to know that it's it's not a, a way of, of just, oh, fine, let's add a 15-character password on this encrypted drive. They'll still continue because as technology increases, you might find in a few years' time, you get the phone call from GCHQ and say, we've actually got back into this one from 15 years ago. We've got all the evidence you need. I mean, you've heard of, of crimes from the past where they've got new technology and then they've got better skills with DNA, for example. The same thing is kind of happening in a digital world as well. So if I was a criminal, which I'm not, what I'm hearing from what you're saying is if I were to commit a crime, because I'm that way inclined, I'm probably more likely to commit a cybercrime provided I had the capability to do so versus murdering someone because I'm less likely to get caught percentage-wise. If you're saying 1%, that's a huge surface now that we've got to deal with, which almost incentivizes these people because they probably know they're not going to get caught or they're going to find is some random country that they know they're not going to get extradited back to the UK, for example. You've got a fantastic to-do list now for anyone listening. Yeah, it's like the how-to guide. Yeah, do you know what? It is kind of like that, you know, but you can just go and search the internet and find blogs like this and, and they'll give you a step-by-step -step guide in how to cover your tracks. But I suppose the really sophisticated uh, career cyber criminals out there, which I actually take my hat off to because it's, it is tough for them to keep on top of the changing technology as well, to continually update their own tactics. Because, you know, if you talk 10 years ago, it's very different back then to what we are now. So they have to continually upskill themselves as well. But I just fall on the fact that they're human. And I fall on the, on the fact that they'll make mistakes. And they do. And it could be anything, but it takes a very good investigator to know where that slip up might be and that might be forensically on the computer or it might be on the internet um or even a physical mistake by, by telling someone something just to ring the alarm bells to make people just point the finger at a particular person or group of people and i think that social element the human element we talk about it in business all the time you know people being the weakest link i know some people hate that but it's kind of true even with criminals because they will slip up at some point. So if we go back to that 1% for a second and you say the 1% was caught, uh, a cyber criminal slipped up, made a mistake, you, you, you being you and you figured them out, how long would you say these people sort of go to jail for? Now, I know that depends on what they did and all that type of stuff, but are these, are these crimes like, oh, okay, you go to jail for six months or is it, are they quite lengthy sort of um jail time or what, what sort of numbers are we talking here? Well, it varies. We haven't got that much data, actually. If we're talking about the 1%, it, it, you know what? It may even be lower than that. The cases that I know of, um, they've varied. There's actually uh, 
a section where you can, um, if you don't provide a password to a device or a container, then you can be put away for two years. Okay. Now th this is, it sounds fantastic. So you've got someone, you arrest them and you go, right, what's the password? We can't get into it. And they say, no, I'm not telling you. Or they just say, I've forgotten it. But in my time in the police, although we try to catch people out by saying, if you don't give it to us, we're going to give you two years in prison. We ne actually never did get anyone away for that offence because it's so easy for them to get off it or reduce the time. Or even if they get to trial and it's taken two years to get to that point, you might even find a judge say, you've gone through all of this drama. Your offence is not actually in prison. It's the last two years, non-custodial. It's frustrating on that work. And you think, great, we haven't even changed this guy. Okay, he's, he's got an offence, but he might actually have just been carrying on the last two years under another complete different name. It, it's, it's so frustrating. The big, big cases, maybe you might get four to six years, but you need so much time and effort on those big cases. And they usually take lots of forces, uh, different countries, Europol, everyone getting together and you still might only get a couple of years if that but unfortunately if they go to prison we always used to kind of joke about this with a bit of a wry smile that well if they go to prison they all talk about um how they got caught they're going to learn how not to get caught in the future this particularly happened with with physical crime offenders they would say what are you doing not wearing gloves. No wonder you cut yourself on the window as you broke into that house. You left your DNA there. Next time, wear gloves. Oh, of course, mate. That's the kind of thing that happens. It's like school. And so they can all learn. But of course, now we've got the internet that does the majority of that for them. So it does come down to the offence and the impact, and particularly risk, risk to life. And that's an important point because a lot of these offences don't attach directly to the risk to life element. And therefore the jail time is considerably less. Mm, yeah, I know what you're saying. I say this because my stepfather is a criminal judge here in Australia. Um, so I can relate on that legal side of things. So then do you think that this is just going to spiral out of control now because we're always talking about, oh, the cyber criminals, they're, you know, they're so much ahead of us and we've got to buy more tech and more people and and then you're sort of saying on the other end, which is like, hey, like, I'm flat even catching these guys. Like, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, if you had to sort of hypothesize. I think we already are seeing it spiral out of control, but I think it's been a long time coming for particularly in the UK to realize that they've got to spend more money in these areas of policing. It is coming, but I, I, I you know what? I really think that when WannaCry happened, what was it? 2017, um, you know, years ago now. And that, I thought at the time, I was in the cybercrime team at the time, thinking, right, this is so big. We are going to get so much money for this. This is actually what I have been waiting for. I sat back thinking, okay, it'll take a couple of years, but the government are just going to inundate these departments with a lot of cash. And it never came. I then left, uh, yeah, um, a year and a half after that to join the private world partly because I was a bit frustrated that the police wasn't getting the attention that I thought it deserved. So I've been sitting on the sidelines watching and even hearing from inside my old teammates, and it's just getting harder and worse for them. And this is the frustration. I talk about the cat and mouse game and the gap between. Well, I just felt like the mouse is running way ahead there. And the cat's there going, 
I don't even know what direction this mouse ran in. Wow, yeah, yeah so true. Everyone's sort of sitting there that, oh, this, this breach will get more money, more funding. But yeah, I, I guess it, it is coming, but I guess it's sort of, it's incremental. But then I guess the other thing is as well, uh, speaking about the media, is that we often do hear in the news, like so-and-so got breached, but then it sort of dies down. And then we don't really hear much after that in terms of what happened to the group or who was involved. Why do you think that's the case? You think the story's out from a media perspective, and it's ironic because I work in media, and then no one cares after that? I mean, more focused at mainstream media, I would say. Yeah, you know, thinking of that, I think the public have this, maybe this idea that it's completely faceless from the criminal group, and it's victimless as well, because, you know, we hear about it targeting a company. But of course it's not, because the company owns customer data. But people still don't care about privacy, which is so heavily linked with security. I do a lot of work with privacy specialists who go, how on earth are we going to make people care about their data? But when a breach happens, of course, it's a security and privacy risk. But if they do still believe it's victimless, I think we've come to the assessment that we won't ever know who's behind these crimes. I don't think people actually care. Murders get endless amounts of money, particularly in the UK. They're not uh, funded by the local police force. They are funded by our home office. So the government will just give endless money to do overtime and more resources, maybe even staff and police officers from other forces as well. They all come together to to work on it because that's that's great. We've got a fantastic hit rate on um, putting murderers behind bars in the UK. I mean, it, we're in the 90%, I believe. But when it comes to cybercrime, of course, it's so, so low down. This comes back to the whole, is there a risk to life? Oh, it's only data. It's just got duplicated. They're just not caring about it. So it might be a big story at the time that they got breached. And then months later, it's forgotten about, which is probably what these companies want. These companies don't want it talked about all the time. But what I have noticed in the last, particularly the last two years, is there are huge, huge offences, millions, if not billions of lines of data, personal, private information where you live, names, dates of birth, even financial information. It doesn't even get any time in the press. I look around for it, I might find it on Twitter, but the mainstream press doesn't even care because maybe the public doesn't care. They just see it as a number and they expect it, which brings it back to the whole faceless side. So, okay, so you're so right. So do you think, so in media, it's about numbers, it's about eyeballs, who's reading what, who's on the site, that's how they get money for advertising dollars. That's a bit of a controversial point, but... Do you think they don't give it any time because no one cares? So if no one cares, then no one's reading it, which means that their advertising dollars go down. Do you think it's that in there? Is it that cynical? It could be. But then I still believe that the the press are able to control what we are reading rather than them knowing what we want to read ourselves. I think especially when COVID hit, COVID and cybersecurity kind of went together. There was this, there was this link, strangely, that I noticed particularly with security and data and people using the internet obviously more than ever to contact to do everything people that had never done online banking suddenly doing online banking so it upped everyone's security and it upped the amount of offenses i think that were occurring but when you ram it down people's throats for particularly a year and even the last year as well i think now people are just thinking it's a it's a definite it's going to happen they expect it and they accept it and that's 
crazy. I'm thinking, no, we shouldn't ever accept a data breach. No, we need to be going after those people. We need to be looking at their policies, their procedures, making sure this doesn't happen again. Let's up security awareness within staff. But it's just falling on deaf ears. And it's a real shame because particularly my job is to make people extremely aware of the latest techniques. And if you're looking at a latest technique, which is really clever and sophisticated, but it's falling on their ears with the whole, it's never going to happen to me attitude, then we've got a real problem. So there is that balance about maybe not scaring them, but making people at least aware of what's coming. And and that's where I think the press have a, a big part to play. Yeah, you're so true. Do you think as well, I think we spoke on this, uh, sorry, touched on this when we spoke last, is when it comes to cyber, like we said, it's faceless, you can't really see anyone, but like when it comes to a murder, and I think I used, there was a case in the US where it went global because there was a, I think it was a couple, they doing some trouble vlogging or something and she went missing and then they're like, oh, he murdered her and it was this whole story and, you know, then had the parents that came on and they spoke about their daughter and then what the, he was doing and they had built this whole narrative which was you know completely devastating but we're not really doing that in our space because we don't really know who these people are right and so i think that people can attach some level of empathy because they can see oh that's terrible it was the the husband that killed the wife like that's more of a s- sad story versus like oh well you know um the bank here in Australia got like a million dollars stolen. Oh, who cares? Because, you know, banks are awful anyway. There's always that narrative. So I think, how do we change that? Like, we obviously don't want people to get, start getting murdered in the cyberspace for anyone to care, but it feels that that's only people what they care about. So w- what's your sort of thoughts? What's your advice? Well, you never know with the metaverse coming, I'm sure we'll see some murders happen there. But I think it's so difficult to make people really understand now, years ago, I actually thought, I wonder if the banks turned off any sort of uh, giving the money back. Uh, imagine that you get £20,000 swiped away from you from a, a credit card. No, not in real cash. So the credit card's been taken out in your name because your identity's been stolen. It's pretty easy to go and do this. And, and cleverly, they've got this card out in your name and it's got a 20000 limit on it, for example. They've got to spend it everywhere and they don't know who it is, who's done it. Now, what if the bank said, you know what, uh, you actually now owe us £20,000 that we're not going to write that off. I mean, there would be uproar. And I remember thinking, this is the way to do it. But then at the same time, thinking, well, that could really affect people's livelihoods. And whose fault is it? Is it their fault that they put their information on a website and it got stolen because the website had poor security or just had a clever phishing attack or social engineering attack or an insider threat, you name it, the list is endless of how that data might have gone out. Who's at fault? Well, someone's got to pay. Is it the company? These companies aren't really paying. They're just getting a a slap on the wrist. And the banks are saying, well, come on, it's not really our fault either. It's a real issue. And as I think we're going round in circles, I think the public are kind of getting away with it. And therefore they don't attach that emotion to it because they just say, I'm going to have my money back. Of course, it's not the same as a burglary. I mean, if you ever imagine coming home one night and there's someone in your house, okay, it's going to be horrendous then, but it's going to be horrendous thereafter. You're going to be scared in your own home for the foreseeable future. You might not be able to sleep at night. You know, all those horrible things and uh, and worries that could affect you. Whereas when your money's taken with the faceless aside to this, 
people get over it, especially when they get reimbursed by the bank. Yeah, that's so true. And I know because I used to work at a bank as well. I remember having this discussion. I remember explicitly it was in 2017 and they're like, what happens if we just decided to not give people their money back? And I was like, look, it's, I get exactly where you're coming from. It would force people to care more, but then I think we'd have more criminal activity because people are like, well, all my money's gone. What am I going to do? And then people would start, you know, murdering and all sorts of things would start going on. Right. So I think it's a, it's a hard one. But then I think if I zoom out and it's like, okay, um, if we've got critical infrastructure and okay, take a power plant and that gets breached and all of a sudden the, you know, the, the thing melts down and it kills 50 people. Do you think then we would have a lot more people feeling empathetic because it's a cyber riot breach? I still don't think it will because it's going to turn into, oh, the power plant blew up. It's not going to start from, oh, it was a cyber breach, which caused the power plant to blow up. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, they've tried to connect uh, cyber offences to people dying in hospital and theatre beds, but it's very difficult. It's it's still an indirect hit. It might be directly attacked at the hospital with ransomware. I mean, the press desperately tried to link it to see if it actually could have a physical uh, change on someone's health and maybe even impact with a death. But it's very difficult to actually uh, associate that. I mean, your example there is a great one. And, and, and I think it could definitely increase people's awareness and make them realize that we are talking about the physicalities uh, and the connections. But un- until then, of course, I hope that never happens. But un- until something massive, and I thought WannaCry was massive, then I think people just seem to put it to the back of their minds and think maybe the police has got it. But that's not to say that the police should take the foot off the gas and if anything coming to my first point, they really need to be putting even more emphasis on there because we need to be telling criminals that it doesn't pay because at the moment, well, like we've alluded to earlier, it sounds like it does. And it sounds quite lucrative. If you hear of the, the amounts of money these groups are making in a day from doing a few scams here and there, they might only get a three to 5% hit rate on a phishing email, for example, but that three to 5%, yeah, well, it's more than I make in a day. Yeah, from sitting in your home and not having to speak to anyone remotely, I think it's yeah, not too bad, right? So I've got I've got an interesting one. So we spoke before about again, um, if I was in the UK, I committed crime. Um, that's the you know the United Kingdom. What what your rules and regulations are, what the laws are in Australia, the same things. Uh, so do you think? And I mean, there are, there is stuff in the media about this, but I don't know how it's going to go. Like, are we going to create like a universal? law of the internet because it's like okay well you can't do that on the internet but because we are in different parts of the world you you may not get prosecuted or it may not be part of the law or no one cares by that point because you're not technically you're not committing the crime because I sort of look at it from uh online bullying like I'm I'm so happy that you when I went to school like all of like Facebook and it was just emerging when I was in year 12 and now I think you know another 15 years or whatever's gone by and I'm thinking look at what kids have to deal with today and it's like well how do you sort of put any emphasis on you know I can't go out in the street now and just punch someone that's not the law but technically online you're punching people in the face because you're trolling them you're bullying them so are we going to get to a stage where we've got this sort of universal I don't know um, future of the internet I think it's called in the media I've spoken about it before so that way we can try to reduce this, but then it just feels it's going to be hard to enforce because there is things like, you know, using VPNs or whatever it may be like, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, th- I think this is the difficult 
way of where we're going. Um, it sounds perfect to have a universal law, but you're going to have countries that just don't abide by it or don't sign the agreement. And then you'll have what I call cyber havens, just like uh, tax havens. You've got countries in the world that people know that they uh, get a better tax rate, you know, might have your money in Monaco, for example. You know, th this is the kind of thing we'll see. There'll be particular countries, I don't know, the Cayman Islands might be the place that all cyber criminals like to go because they're, they're completely uh, evading the rest of the world's laws. I mean, and then people will pretend to be in the Caymans through their VPN. I mean, you name it, cyber criminals are so good at circumnavigating any sort of rule. I think that's what's so impressive. You give them a, a law or a rule. And remember, in the UK, it takes years for that to come into, into use as well. So they've got a couple of years to get ready for it as well. So they all talk about it themselves. And someone, some bright spark will work out a way of getting around it. And they all go and do it. But I think it's so horrible if you're talking about cyberbullying. Yes, of course. And, and that needs to be seen as maybe on a local aspect as well. But the more the internet grows, the, the cleverer the young people are getting, the easier it becomes for them. And they're hiding behind it. Yeah, I know. I guess that's just the issue because, like, I'm just hearing, like, speaking to, like, friends and they've got children and they're like, oh, my gosh, that's happened to my kid. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, these kids are, like, ruthless. Like, I was never like that at school. So I guess I was surprised. And so I'm, I'm just – it's hard. It's not like there's an easy answer. I guess having the conversations, people like yourself to just – you know, we don't have all the answers, but it's having these discussions to get people to think because I do think it does need a full back on the government. But they're probably thinking, like, well, what do you want us to do? Like, we can't, you know – we couldn't even tell people in Australia to put masks on at one point, let alone let's try to control people on the internet. So it's, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I'm just curious to know, like, what are we going to do? Because as you sort of alluded to multiple times in today's interview is it is spiraling out of control. It is getting worse. And so I guess if it's getting worse and it's spiraling out of control and we don't have any solutions, like, where are we going to end up? Well, I do think it's going to get better in terms of cyberbullying. One of the things I, I think about is, Let's say you take uh, an average uh, young teenager, like a 13-year-old, who's just got a mobile phone uh, on social media and starts with the typical classic bullying, which, well, like you, I never saw it, luckily. But um, it must be horrendous. And I've seen some horrendous things. They don't know where to turn because their parents are potentially completely away from it. You know, a couple of generations older, didn't have phones when they were younger, don't really get technology. And I see that, you know, the, the, the typical mom or dad, as you say, won't understand a lot of these apps. But although we're in a bit of a, a difficult time right now for these teenagers, when they become parents themselves, I think they'll understand the technology a little bit better. Okay, they'll still be two generations older than the next level of teenager, but they will understand cyberbullying because they would have experienced it. You know, I've got kids. I've never experienced cyberbullying. My daughter is 10 years old, hasn't got a phone yet. Once she does, it's going to be t very tough. And I understand technology and I work inside this environment, but it's going to be tough how I learn through her what it's really like. But when I think, well, when she's going to be a parent in, I don't know, to a 10 year old in 30 years time, she'll kind of get it a little bit better. Although there'll still be the huge age gap, I think there might be that way of understanding which 
say you and I don't have. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think you're absolutely right. I think that, I guess we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen. I think it's just getting parents to be equipped with the knowledge and the insights and, and saying like, okay, like you can only have X amount of phone time. Like you can't be on the phone 24 seven. And then, Hey, you like, you know, you, you educate your own children through that. But do you also believe that there are other people out there who do care about knowing like who cyber criminals are, like just outside of you and me? Yeah, of course. I mean, crime shouldn't pay. We need to catch all these criminals. And I don't think the police want to take a blind eye to a lot of these things, but it, it is too difficult for law enforcement currently. But unfortunately, yeah, perpetrators are getting away. But I do think it's going to change. Like I say, it comes back down to the resources, pumping that money into it and working with technology companies as well, working with the technology and these firms to make it easier. I've always felt that law enforcement, schools, parents and companies, they don't work together. Some people have tried. It's difficult. But I, I do think we can do it criminals they're running away with it whether they're cyber bullying or breaching massive banks for data it's all kind of a, a connection but working together i do think it, it is the way forward and raising that awareness for all ages and bringing it more into schools as well so not just about cyber safety it's cyber security i know that most schools don't touch on those kind of things they, they tend to work more on the bullying or maybe grooming side of things which is right but i think we need to be focusing more on the future maybe the curriculum haven't uh, really seen the future yet but again that takes a long time to change so we are getting there we are moving in the right direction just a little bit slower than we'd all hope at the moment but we will get there and do you think over time as well going back to that one percent they get caught do you think that that will increase over time because we are going to get better we've got better technology got better people yeah, I, I really do. Um, I can't ever see it turning in, into into the majority. Maybe it'll go up slowly and maybe it'll never go above 10%. But we need to be working on that. It's not giving faith to the public. you know. And it's funny because in the UK, we always have these stats that come out every year that say, um, how how safe do you feel and how much faith have you got in your police force? And it's it's damaging when you look at the statistics of who really trusts or believes in their police force. But that probably comes down to the fact that they're not catching all criminals. And, and to those people that are thinking, well, they never found that person that hacked into my Instagram account. You know, they are spending time on catching murderers. Brilliant. And, and, and people that are driving too fast, which could cause uh, a horrendous accident. But at the same time, they need to be spending uh, the time on the local things, the hacking of the of people's personal accounts, the bigger breaches, those kind of things. That's what gives the faith back to the public. And then they feel safe and then everything can then grow from that position. Yeah. And I think sometimes as well, like when I've met people just randomly and they're like, oh, what do you do? And you start telling them, they're like, oh, well, you know, I had this story and then my Instagram got hacked or my Facebook got breached or something happened. And then straight away, there's that point of that they can relate on that consumer level because I would say everyone out there has had something that's been close to that or it's like, oh, someone's trying to log into your Gmail or whatever it may be. There's an alert, but because you've got two-factor, they can't log in. So I think that, you know, um, even speaking to people who don't know anything about me and you start saying, oh, I'm in cyber and this is what I do, and then straight away they start to open up those conversations about their own personal experiences, 
which isn't like, oh, like, you know, here's me um, implementing some enterprise level solution. It's more so, oh, it's something that they can relate to on that consumer level. So I think, unfortunately, what I've seen even speaking to people because they have been hurt before by something that's happened on this front, they're a little bit more you know, vigilant moving forward and they're more cognizant of it because they have been burnt and it does hurt and it is upsetting, especially when it's their own personal life on the line and their own reputation. And unfortunately, we don't want that to happen to everyone. But sometimes, you know, like even when you're a kid and your mum's like, oh, don't touch the, um, what you guys call it, is it a hob in the UK? Don't touch the hob. Um, and you touch it and it burns and you stop doing it again. And I don't want that to be a thing that happens to everyday people, but maybe it has to be on some level like that for people to to have that level of cybersecurity awareness a bit more. You're absolutely right. And the people that I've spoken to that it's happened to, they, they mentioned that feeling in their stomach that, oh, I felt terrible. I lost all my data or I've lost my Instagram business account. And there's only so much you can say, I told you so to those people. They don't want to hear that. But they learn and they really do go forward. And then when you say, oh, have you set up your uh, Google Authenticator yet? They go, oh, yeah, I did it straight away when you asked. You go, oh, wow. But you say the same thing to someone else who hasn't had that happen to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jake's just talking about cybersecurity again. Get on about that. Rubbish. You know, th that tends to be the way. So I know that particularly I do a lot of talks and training with companies. I try and get them to have that feeling in their stomach, which is really difficult. But I try and do it in a way that they at least then think about it, should they then go back to their accounts and go, you know what, I shouldn't have the same password for absolutely everything. Because you'll have it in your companies all over the world. People are using the same password still to, to get into their Instagram as they do to log on to their Windows machine. It's just human nature for the majority, and it's unfortunate. But if you can get them to have that feeling of, of an attack, I mean, that's a strong word, but it is, they then remember it later on. And so, yeah, your hob example is absolutely right because as soon as someone touches it, they're going to know forever that actually hurt when touching it. Well, we call it a stove here in Australia, but I did remember that you guys call it a hob there because you'd be like, what is that? Um, but look, this has been awesome, Jake. Really appreciate um, your thoughts, insight. This is an interesting topic because it's something I've never covered before. I think something that when you raised it, I was like, yeah, that's so true. It's something I've often thought about, like, who are these criminals? Bring them to the media. I want to look at what they look like. Um, so, yeah, I think this has been an exceptional interview and I really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the show. No, thank you. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.